Kuzu Zambo, you are listening to Bhutan Dialogues, a platform to discuss ideas and issues in development. Bhutan Dialogues is a joint initiative of the Lodin Foundation and the United Nations in Bhutan, held every second Thursday of the month in Thimpo. I'm Karma Pinso, the host for the conversations, and the guest for today's session is Dorji Dradul, the Zongda of Gaza, to discuss community development and state bureaucracy. The dialogue has three parts. Mr. Gerald Daly, the resident coordinator of the United Nations in Bhutan, will introduce the session, followed by my conversation with a guest. The session ends with a Q&A with a live audience. Gaza Zongda in Bhutan is our main speaker today, and he's been a champion in mainstreaming organic farming and promoting bureaucratic innovations. Our topic for today is Good to Great Gaza, Invigorating Development, in the era of organic farming. During the weekends at the Centenary Farmers Market, it's often full with imported vegetables. Many people are asking the question, can these imported potatoes and onions be grown in Bhutan? Tempo, with an estimated population of just under 140,000, offers substantial opportunities for commercial farming in the country. Many of these 140,000 people are keen to buy local produce. Good to Great Gaza is part of this solution. Gaza's development story through organic farming is a lot like what we do at the UN, Senda Nosam Tingo, which roughly translates as the need to combine mind and heart thinking with action as we do our work to ensure no one is left behind. Our speaker for today is Zonda Dorji Dradu. Zonda is a writer and has published numerous articles and research papers. He has also authored a book that represents a uniquely different take on life in Bhutan and moving beyond the cliché descriptions of traditional life to a story grounded in the real world. His book, Escapades, Awakenings, offers a glimpse into the real realities of this society. I first was fortunate to come in direct contact with the Zongda at International Women's Day. And from that speech, he said the following, which stayed in my mind. First things first, he said. So first, we men have to transform in order to transform women's lives. Let's live our everyday lives with he for she value. He also brought a level of passion to that discussion, which I found invigorating. Dr. Karma Fonso, there is a quote from a recent council article which has him saying, both in the pre-Buddhist and Buddhist worldviews, the gods play a major role in human well-being and prosperity. The traditional Bhutanese life was a constant negotiation with such forces of nature, which fill the environment alongside the visible forms of life, such as humans, insects, animals, birds. It is this type of thinking that makes for holistic development. His regular column in Kunsel is a must-read for many people, especially for those who wish to acquire a deeper understanding of this fast-evolving and unique Bhutanese culture. He is indeed a wise guide and seer into this culture. Bhutan Dialogues, and now I'm coming to my closing, is always looking for thought-provoking speakers. 
So if you have someone you would wish to come and listen to, please reach out to Sering Chunki, who's standing at the back, Ponso, who's also standing, Dr. Karma or myself. In addition to learning about a specific topic, such as today's, on new thinking and action on rural development, Bhutan Dialogues is a great networking opportunity, especially if you are a college student or graduate that is looking for interning opportunities or even a job. This will likely be my last opportunity to wish many of you a Merry Christmas, and I would like to end by doing so. Merry Christmas, as I now hand over Dr. Karma and the Zonda. Welcome to Bhutan Dialogues. I'm quite uneasy to not address Zonda as Dasho, but it is Dasho's um, choice that the title of Dasho should be used to anybody who is not having the red scarf. And there was a, an excellent article in August in the Pinsel published by Zonda about the gullibility and how we misuse the titles on the so um, excuse me you may think that I mean but I'm going to Zonda's opinion not to use it at all but it's a great pleasure for us to have you because uh, you're the first civil servant that we have as our guest um, this is a forum where we try to have a civil conversation on development policies on our projects of progress we try to ask generic questions but with humility I often say, uh, in a Buddhist context, what we try here is to practice mindful listening and right speech, and to that push the boundaries of our thought, to refine our uh, understanding of development and human progress. You have been working as a civil servant, but also have been involved in grassroots development. Now you are head of the local government. Um, so it's a great opportunity for us to really talk about development at the grassroots. But before we delve into today's topic of rural development, uh, as which we often ask our guests to tell a little bit about yourselves. What we do you are, what brought you where you are right now, and if you have any interesting insights or experiences, episodes, anecdotes that can highlight your journey, your education. Good evening to all. Uh, thank you, Dr. Karma. Thank you, Jiram. And thank you, the participants here, for your presence. <coughs> well, the, uh, to start with the question, I mean, what made who I am today? This is a big question, actually. I think it's a big question, so I won't be able to uh, really answer this, but just to give an, to give an, I mean, attempt to answer this, I, I consider at this point in time, I am a happy husband, a happy father, a happy son, a happy brother, and most of all, a happy uh, civil servant. And for this, uh, I'd like to express my gratitude to so many people, specifically my family, friends, the people of the country, and the king, and of course, all the Almighty God for, for what I'm today. And most of all, uh, I'd like to mention the credit uh, goes to my better half, my wife. Uh, and why I'm saying is because the last four years of my uh, service, uh, I'm posted in Casa, and we have to live a separate life. My family is in Thimpu, and she has taken a 
sort of a sole responsibility of raising our two children. And one of our children, our son is fairly young. When I left Timbu uh, for my job in Gaza, he was just three years old, I think, just two years old. So it was a tough decision. And of course, uh, over the years, actually, I was actually talking to her, saying that maybe I should try to get a transfer back to Timbu so that I can uh, help her. But then she was very uh, strong. She said, Oh, looks like you are bringing something good to Gaza, so you should continue. So, so therefore, I am a very happy person as of now, especially in the last four years, and I think the really, uh, goes to well. Now, coming back a little bit on the philosophical side, I've come to realize now, after these four years of my work in Gaza, that I've been actually practicing the principle of living the moment to the best today. Uh, don't leave anything go tomorrow. And this can be best, I think, expressed, has been best expressed by John Lennon in his song, The Beautiful Boy. And I quote, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. And I feel this has been so, so true with me. And just to explain it a little bit, when I was in school, I used to love singing. I used to be single. Cliff Richard used to be my favorite singer. I think Gerard knows Cliff Richard, you are from that, that part of the world. And I used to sing a song. I can still remember with the, those ecstasy moments when my friends called me Cliff. And those days, they, they tell me that I, I, look, uh, I have that appearance of Cliff Richard. I don't know whether that's true or not. But I really used to love to hear my friends call me Cliff. And then as I moved on, when I was in college, I was studying agriculture. And then when I was studying agriculture, I, I wanted to be an abstract artist. I used to appreciate Pablo Pisaco. Uh, and I, I did some abstract art myself also. But then I was studying agriculture and then I ended up working in the civil service in agriculture for almost 15 years. That's my field. I'm an agriculturist. I think I should be here talking to you, but not here. <laughs> so, uh, uh, yes. so then after working for 15 years in Ministry of Agriculture, I wanted to switch. I wanted to work in Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And in fact, I sat for an interview for a post to a director in Foreign Ministry, but of course I was not selected. It's okay. Oh, just before I got appointed as a Songa, so that means just before about four years, I was about to resign. No, retire. I mean, not retire, resign from a civil service. I wanted to make a change. I thought I had enough, and basically the reason was I had come to the lowest point in my career in terms of my aspirations in terms of everything. So I wanted to uh, retire, but then again this foundation came, and now today after four years serving as a Zonga, I think that has been my most beautiful life so far. So maybe I'll... I'll, I'll that. Fascinating. You're an abstract artist, musician, um, and it's the servant now leading um, the Songkak district. But you have also written a book you can't write this book, Escapades, the Wikileaks. What motivated you to write the book? What was the purpose behind writing this book out? Well, uh, this book is an, actually an accidental. Uh, I never intended to write a uh, book. I never had a desire to become an author. But uh, what, what happened is actually with this book, I think deep down in my heart, I think I had some uh, soft corner, soft touch for the women, the, uh, the, the other gender. 
and especially with regard to discrimination, the exploitation, the disparity, the victimization that is happening to the women, women folks. So somehow uh, I had that uh, somewhere in the end. I think this has something to do with my own personal life. I mean, maybe. But then the main uh, immediate inspiration that came from this book, for this book is I made an official tour uh, in 2006 to a place called Shyamga. And those days, I think we have to walk. And for me to, uh, that was a uh, three nights uh, halt from starting from traveling to uh, Panbang. So it was during that uh, journey that I came across uh, first time some stark differences between the life in rural areas and the life in urban. Because I am uh, born and brought up in Timbuktu actually. So I have always been a urban boy, you can say. So that was uh, my really going into the internal parts of the country. And that time, I really saw the stark differences. Uh, and especially differences in terms of not only the physical service facilities, but especially in terms of women's rights, women's freedom, and also the children based in rural. So, so as I think earlier, Jiram was saying, this book is basically talking about the women empowerment. Uh, in fact, the book repeatedly mentions how some arrogant, uh, over-indulgent civil servants would go out to the rural villages on official duty and then abuse the rural uh, people, particularly the women. And the protagonist of the book is, in fact, a fatherless uh, girl. This is a story from the, uh, the last decades of the 20th century. You are still a bureaucrat, a civil servant. Do you think? There are still such cases happening in Mutan. Are civil servants still going around abusing women or village folk sometimes help the situation in good? Firstly, I would like to just make a small correction. So it's not just a civil servant. Uh, is any urban-based male, any urban-based male going to role is, I mean, the context of the story. So, but those days, I think the most of these visitors were anyway civil servants. So, I think that's how we take it. But it was any any urban based. Uh, and now coming to your question, I think I like to believe I hope this whatever I have described in this book is a history now. It should be a history. The place where I worked just now in Gaza. So I have been traveling. We have very remote geogs in Gaza. Two of our geogs in Gaza, Diane and Nana, they still. Uh, even worse than the place that to 20, I mean, the place that I've described here in Mongol. So that, that places are still there in Laya and Runana today. So, but I think my observation and my experience, I think things have changed. This, this is what I, what I feel like. So you think there's a better gender parity now, even in rural places, and less abuse? Comparing to the past, but I don't know whether I should comment uh, the, on, on the other aspects of the agenda. Should I know? Yes, please. But if I make a general comment, today, across the nation, the gender parity, the gender issue, the gender discrimination is still a major issue. In fact, as earlier, Gerald just uh, informed the House about my talk uh, in that uh, big forum, I said one of the biggest failure of humanity is not just Bhutan actually. I feel it goes beyond, it is a global thing. So I say one of the biggest failure of our humanity today is the fact that 
I mean, we are in the 21st of century, that we are not able to bring this gender parity. This everywhere is struggling. So Bhutan is not an exception. Of course, comparing to the past, I think we have made it come along, but it's still a major, major challenge in all walks of life, in, in all areas. Since uh, this seems to be an issue that's uh, really deep in your heart, uh, let me ask you further. Um, I think it's partly because of your upbringing, partly because of the role your uh, better half, your wife plays. You're very sensitive to gender issues, it seems. Do you think that we should also bring some of those people who have committed this awful negative uh, um, actions be brought to justice? In, in the Me Too movement uh, today, a lot of people in the West are being brought to justice. Do you think that should be done very good terms? Some culprits who have automated what you so if I have to give my honest opinion, yes, definitely, because I think last, I think we have just completed this Hear Me uh, campaign, so there yeah, actually we are supposed to uh, come up with all these kind of stories, but I don't think in Bhutan as a long this has really happened, so I think it should happen. I mean, then only uh, we'll be walking the talk, otherwise it's just talk. So if we really try to bring out these real stories, bring them in the open space, Maybe I think this would really uh, have a have a really, really nice. Now uh, to move on to uh, today's main theme, um, you as Zongdao Kasa have initiated uh, this campaign, uh, Good to Great Kasa. It's a very interesting, uh, something that attracts uh, attention from lots of people. Can you tell us a little bit about what this is about, what you intend to achieve through Good to Great Kasa initiative? Good to Great is something that has been inspired uh, by His Majesty. This is our King's vision as of today is to make our country great. Uh, great in the sense that that is the highest uh, possible target. And my belief is to make a country great, all 20 Zonghaks have to be great. So if one of these Zonghaks is not great, then we cannot have a great country. So all 20 Zonghaks have to be great. So then I said, once I posted there, now I got this inspiration, because just before I got posted as a Zonga, uh, I had the opportunity, honor to be serving directly, closely with His Majesty for almost a month. So that was the time when I got inspired about this good to great. So I said, Gaza having been posted there, I found the environment, the conditions so conducive. There, I think, I thought, we can show an example. Gaza can be the first Zonghaq to become great. Now, my definition of great is, now if you are to qualify this, we would consider Gaza Zonghaq as great when Gaza achieves self-reliance. As of now, on average, uh, on annual basis, we are getting 200 million government budget. So when we become self-reliant, when we become great, I mean, you can say we have become a self-reliant or great, when we stop getting this 200 million, I mean, as of the past five years, on annual basis, when we stop getting that grant, then we would consider ourselves a self-reliant or great. So therefore, the other 20, 19 Zonghaks will follow us, and then we continue. And that is the main inspiration part. Now coming to the basics, uh, details on this, I just brought this logo. Uh, this is the logo of Good to Great Gaza. We are actually officially using this. Now here you see actually eight endless knots. I mean, we have the same uh, symbol here also. It's a coincidence. And we have also chosen this, uh, the endless knot. Now, why we have chosen this endless knot is, 
Helenist norms is one of the eight lucky signs, and it depicts interconnectivity, interdependence, this kind of thing. So here, the eight, in, we have four in the front, four in the well, back. Now, four in the front actually represents the four geos. We have four geos in our tsongkha. It represents the four geo. The four in the back represents the uh, four pillars of the GNH, cross-national happiness. This four plus four combined put together is eight, and eight is uh, depicts the eight noble uh, four uh, parts of our, and we know Bhutan is a spiritual country, so that spirituality aspect is, is there. Now, uh, the basic concept in this good to great is, now to achieve this good to great, to achieve this self-reliance, the basic condition that I we force, saw in our district is, and I think it's true in, in other focus also, there is no connectivity, there is no connection. The four geos is such a small zone cup, and the, the geos are almost independent. I mean, they, they don't want to come together. So we said, no, this is the first thing we need to do is bring this geo together, and we have to work as a one lab. So therefore, it's strongly reflected in our goal also. And now this, uh, not only the geos, even the next uh, challenge we saw is, uh, as a civil servant here, and we know civil servant is the engine of development, as of now, whether we like it or not, it's there. And there we found, again, there's a delink between the civil servants and the process uh, within ourselves. There's a delink between, the, we are so sectoral, so sectoral. Even a small zone like Gaza, agriculture doesn't know what livestock is doing, livestock doesn't know what engineering is doing, engineering doesn't know what agriculture, I mean, education is doing. This is not right. I mean, it's a small zone If we have to achieve this big vision, we have to work together. So, so we were trying to do this. That is one aspect. The other aspect is, the public servants, civil servants, and the public, the, the citizens. We are there to serve the citizens. And there's again big dealing. By the way, I'm saying this, we have not corrected this. We are on our way to through this vision, way to correct all this. Now, between the public and the civil servants, also there's a dis, dis, big disconnect. Now, again, if it is there, then again, it's not going to achieve the So, and uh, the other major principle in this good to great is, as I said earlier, civil servants are the engine of development there, whether you like it or not, they should be the mover and shaker. As of now, if they don't do, take the lead, then uh, we, we, they only, we only able to achieve much in, in a place like Gaza. So therefore, we wanted to take, uh, I mean, leverage on, on the civil servants. So therefore, we are saying one of the principles of good to great Gaza is leveraging human resources. Now, the problem, the issue with the uh, civil servants or the public servants is we are, I mean, way below what we are expected to do. So therefore, and there are so many reasons. One is, I think, basically, I think it is now coming in the public also. So civil servants are not, I think, adequately compensated. Now, their salary is just, if you live, have to live by their, their salary, it's just enough for, I mean, hand to work. I mean, so therefore, maybe because of that, I mean, so many things, but so, plus also, Things have not really been uh, really conceptualized, but maybe I'll give you that. So, Zonda, uh, you very clearly pointed out how the civil service, the bureaucracy, is still the main driver of uh, development, even in remote districts like US. Um, now, I'm wondering whether it's just a matter of incentives and uh, salaries that really uh, would make a difference in making civil service engage further. To, uh, to develop networks, 
recently the former president of uh, India, Pranab Mukherjee, said bureaucracy is the biggest hurdle to development. There is a sort of a mindset in the bureaucracy that is sometimes a challenge for development work. As the leading civil servant in your district, how do you find your colleagues, your uh, um, fellow civil servants working? Do we need to have a shift in how they work as well beyond that you are? What can you do yes. to change that mindset? No, I think uh, that's a very good question. Yes, uh, I think uh, I totally go along with your question uh, or your thoughts. My own personal concept or understanding of what a civil servant should be. Uh, my definition of civil servant would be an ideal civil servant. Okay, as of now, I've come across just a couple of them, fitting my kind of uh, definition. Now, if I compare, like, for instance, what I say is, as the monks commit their life for the spiritual well-being of the all sentient beings, I mean, that's what they're supposed to be. They're sacrificing their, and similarly, as the armed forces, commit their life, supposed to be committing their life for the security of the, to save the security of nation. I define civil service as, as a civil servant, we should, should commit our life to the development, socio-economic development of our fellow citizens. So we should be selfless. So therefore, as you say, the question of your remuneration, the question of a salary should not come at all. It is your mindset. Because I feel the moment you have decided, okay, now in the past is different, but I feel now for the future one, the moment you decide to join a civil service, you have taken a decision. You have to take a decision that I'm here to serve my fellow citizens, fellow citizens nothing for my own personal this is what I feel. So definitely, if we have to achieve the visions of good to great Gaza, all to make our country great, there has to be a big paradigm shift in the mindset and the attitude of the civil servants uh, as of today. I've heard of uh, small initiatives you've already taken to recognize uh, some civil servants or public servants who do more than what they're required to do. Can you tell us a little bit about these initiatives? Yes, so, yes, so while, while we agree that it's not just the incentives and the motivation uh, that would actually should determine the performance of a civil servants, but for the practical reason, as of now, it it also plays a big role. So therefore, in our Zonka, in persons to this good to pray, our first target was to change the mindset, to motivate, to incentivize our civil servants in Kasa. So therefore, now this uh, National Day is going to be the third edition. So it's from 2016, we have started during the National Day, as at the national level, when His Majesty awards the, the medals and for the distinguished civil servants or from all walks of uh, life. In Gaza also during National Day, we award three um, annual Good to Great Gaza Award. The name of the award is Annual Good to Great Gaza Award. So to the three most outstanding, for the first year it was just a civil servant. But then in the second year, we opened up. We said, it's not just civil servant who's going to, of course they are the main one, but we need the uh, support of other stakeholders. So they will be opened up. And so in the second year, we had, of three, we had one 
from a public sector also. He was a guard, police, I mean, guard, security guard of a bank of Bhutan. That award carries, I mean, that's supposed to be the highest honor in at Songkhak level. And the award carries, this is one sample, actually, we give one of this. This accompanied by a certificate and then a cash prize. And of course, we cash prize, our aim is to make it very attractive to increase. We started with 5,000. Second year, uh, we increased to 7,000. This year, we are increasing to 10,000. It's yet to happen. In fact, we have already selected. So this is one. And then, of course, we have some other uh, also uh, initiatives to, to incentivize our civil service. So uh, you have uh, taken initiatives to build the capacity of the agents of change. You have adopted an approach that is collaborative in nature among the civil servants and between the civil servants and the public. Now, if the goal is really self-reliance, if you want to reach a point where Gaza doesn't need 200 million that comes from the government exchequer, we need to have programs. And, uh, I think Gaza has come up with some initiatives. And I don't normally drink cold water, but I've been drinking your Gaza water. Okay. <laughs> so, Thank you. Uh, um, it's delicious. <laughs> so tell us about the social enterprises that you have initiated. Uh, you, in the introduction, Jerry um, also mentioned the organic farming, your aspirations to make Gaza the first organic district in the country. So what type of social enterprises have you approached? And how are they doing? Yes. So, thank you. I think earlier you have given me opportunity, but I missed this. It's very important. In fact, this is the main topic of this session here. So, thank you so much for again coming back to this. Now, under this Good to Great Gaza, the self reliance making it great. The biggest initiative uh, we have as of now is the community owned company, the social enterprise you have talked about. And it is the very basis of this logo, is that we are talking about making these four geos one to be a successful Zonga. Now, this community-owned company, we, we started, uh, the, the groundwork started as early as 2016. And we could uh, launch this company only, uh, I mean, almost a year ago in 2017. And only last October, 2018, 8th October, we handed over this to the community. Now, let me uh, elaborate a little on this. The initial funding came from Zonka Development Grant. That was a boon for us, I mean, the early government. They, they gave us all the Zonkas, they gave us seven, 7 million each. Now, 7 million from the very first year, of course, we, we got only for two years. So the first year itself, we took this opportunity because the guideline says this money is to be used at, your, at the discretion of Zonga. Uh, of course, with due process. But it was just a formality. We, once we come up with a proposal, we put it up to the Zonkas of Do, and they will yeah, anyway endorse. I mean, we have to convince them. So it is in the hand of Zonga. So we proposed this. We said now we, this is an opportunity. We have to start something here because at that time, and even as today, in the name of industry or in the name of modern development, this is the only plant as of now in the whole Gaza Zonga. We had nothing there. So we said we have to do something. We have to talk about self-reliance. We need to produce our own things. We need to make our own revenue. So we said this is going to be the main. Now, with 7 million investment, we started uh, this, this plant. Wow. But from the day one, we said, Zonkha, we are just going to start, and it is going to be handed over to the community. Mm -hmm. So from the first year, we said that you know, we invested around 7 million, so we wanted to raise 70 million as equity from the public, and we floated that share. Mm -hmm. But of course, I must confess here that 
from the Ministry of Finance, there was some objection to that initiative. But we said, no, no, we, uh, of course, we, we do respect. Uh, there was no sort of a serious uh, stopping us, but then we, we went ahead. But then uh, the concept was still not so clear with the public, so nobody bought these shares. So for one year, Zonkhav, we continued. Then, finally, uh, when, when you were convinced that the voluntarily looks like uh, the people are yet, because the reason is they are still not clear. So then we opened up this, we voted, uh, uh, invited uh, people's uh, I mean, expression of interest through BDS and Pinsel, and we invited the people of Gaza to participate. We said now we are handing over this, interested Gaza citizens should participate. So we got seven interested candidates. Of seven, finally we selected one. I mean the one who is now of now how how is this community owned company? Now the seven millions that we have invested, the money is not there in cash, it's not there in bank bank balance. These are all in terms of the kind it is in the plant. Now that seven million actually we could have decided it is gone there now. There's no claiming of this money. But what we did is we converted this seven million which is invested there into an asset, we convert this into a 70,000 share at the rate of 100 per, per share. And that 70,000 we divided by uh, 597 households. We have a 597 households in Gaza, including all four kilos, and it comes to roughly 107 shares, which is worth as of today 10,700. So each household, 597, we distributed this share. And each of them actually now supposed to have some have been just following up, they have not been able to hand it over. We hand it over to the Kyoks, to the Sokas, and they are supposed to hand it over to the that, that share certificate. So as of today, all 597 households own this company and uh, 70,000 shares totaling. And then we have the balance uh, 35,000 shares, which is equivalent to 3.5 million. That money has to be invested by this one person who was shortlisted, I mean, through open competition. So he invested 3.5 million. So as of now, the that 3.5 million, for that he's getting 35,000 shares. So he's the major shareholder. Now why he's the major, one of the criticisms that we get is, in a share company, a shareholder-based company, the one of the criticisms is that normally, uh, just few select people get the major, but in our case, also, as of now, it appears that way. But we had no option. We had no option because once we hand over, we had we need somebody to really manage this. So as of now, that person is managing this company. And uh, now this is going to be, this community-owned company is really going to be the engine of development for our self-reliance. We started with this Casa C2, is a water. We are coming up with so many other uh, potential enterprises. We will be starting to make the livestock, dairy-based products, even we are not only the products, even services also. Gaza as of now, we don't have a cable TV. This company is going to provide uh, cable service, TV services to our Zonkhagla. So the future of Gaza uh, Zonkhags, I mean, is this community-owned company. That's our belief, our hope, and I think it has to subsist no matter. So this is going to be the main uh, engine of uh, development for this world to and uh, just uh, taking an opportunity, I'd like to request all of you here to kindly support this uh, water. And during the tea session, I think we have some uh, compliment uh, half liter Casa Siuchu. So we are offering to all the participants here with a request that uh, from here on, if you want to drink bottled uh, water, please use our water. <laughs> <laughs> some marketing also. The reason is 
this is a company, community-owned company, is not by one individual. And I think now you know the vision. We want to make us a great and we want to make us a self-reliant. So this will be your your contribution. Sir, <laughs> so, you come with the wonderful background, with the right expertise and experience necessary for, for such projects, because you have worked as a director of um, cooperatives in the Ministry of Agriculture. But when you look at your public, people who you are working with, um, 3,000, 5,000 people. So, such a small population. Now, uh, we have already had difficulty distributing the shares of this water company. In the 12-5 year plan, the local government budgets are going to drastically rise. I think it's going up from 24% right now to about 50% of the entire development budget. Some 200 million each district or something like that a year. So would you have the capacity in the district among your 3,000 people to really utilize the fund effectively and carry forward such now, this is a very difficult question to answer at this point in time, but uh, my only submission would be, I think there is a big opportunity. I think we should uh, take this uh, opportunity. Now, places like Dokar, like Kasa, uh, whatever amount that we get uh, in terms of capital investment, I think uh, capacity-wise is questionable, but I think we can manage this formula. I mean, with the support from the government, from RCC, now, capacity in terms of real human resources. If you talk about human resource capacity, Gaza, I mean, we were really understaffed and in terms of uh, qualification also. Now, uh, at a, at a uh, chief level, supposed to be at P1, I mean, in our uh, uh, position classification, supposed to be at P1, and of, I think we have about 12 or 13 sectors, we just have one sector head who is at P1 level. Mm. And the rest are all very junior. They are at, uh, I think the highest will be at uh, P4 or P5. So there's a big gap. So there is definitely a capacity human resource. And not only at the civil service level, even at the public level. But public level, I think we can manage. I mean, as long as the civil service, as I said, they are the mover and shaker. So if we have this strong committed civil servants, we can uh, hold this. Uh, our public. So uh, we really want to uh, encourage this, the, the money coming to the zone hubs. We, we would like to, but it will be a challenge, but something positive, I think we should go for it. Uh. If we say the capacity is not there, uh, we should not get this budget. I think may, may not be right approach. I think we, we should. But definitely challenges are there. So you are set on making us self-reliant. Self-reliant to the extent that even things from Unaka as import. Yes. So you want to really make us self-sufficient. Um, if you were to remain there as a Zonda for 15 or 20 years, is that likely that it will happen in such a duration of time that Kassar will fully self-reliant? What is the timeline that you foresee for Kassar becoming self-reliant? I have to ask my wife whether I should see. I'm not staying here for 15 years. My wife is here, by the way. <laughs> Okay, but uh, theoretically answering, I don't need 15 years. You just give me about at the most 10 years, I will try it in five years actually. If I'm giving, given the full, uh, I mean, this would be my, my say life. I feel there is an opportunity, definitely opportunity, is in the commitment. 
So five years, that is quite soon. <laughs> um, but uh, now to, to ask the last question I have for you before I open to the audience, uh, it's a ritual that we follow. We ask you uh, for any habitual practice you have, anything that you do to remain sharp on top of things, uh, be effective. Do you follow any practices? Uh, do you have some um, habits, something that really keeps you both physically fit and mentally alert? Uh, what keeps you effective? Okay, uh, I cannot think of anything special. Uh, but just, just to share some of my habits, I think one thing that constantly gets me inspired is, especially after my attachment with His Majesty, the inspiration that we uh, get from His Majesty. That's one. Uh, the second is, of course, the relationship that uh, we have with our, in, within the family, is supporting each other, the understanding. I would say this. And on the more practical side, just to keep myself healthy and all, I think uh, one of the side benefits that I get being hosted in Kasa is we have to do a lot of walking there. So very less opportunity to travel in the car. So I think that keeps you healthy. And on top of that, I mean by default I have to do more walking there, but I also do try to take some regular walks and I mean, extra joggings and all. The other would be, I think I should not miss out this, I also try to do, practice some simple uh, spiritual habits like offering the water offering in the morning. I try to do this and a simple uh, meditation, simple prayer. Uh, and whenever I get a chance, I think of course time is uh, difficult. I try to do some reading also. Uh, I cannot think of anything special, but these are my normal, normal habits. Thank you. Ishidoji, UNFPA. Uh, thank you so much, very inspirational. I was just thinking, like, you have uh, suddenly you have touched so much on the income part of that's a good to great. But uh, I was also thinking there are a lot of things you have already sort of maybe thinking or you have done, particularly when you are touching about gender issues there. Is there anything that you can elaborate on this? What are the things that you want to change? The way people think, the way people treat uh, another other person. So I, I was just wondering if there's anything that you have within the good to create. Uh, specifically on the gender thing, actually, some practical initiatives we are doing. Some, uh, for instance, especially on the women themed events, like International Women Day or uh, cannot remember all, but there are some certain international events where women is the topic. We uh, have always made in the last three years women as chief guests. Of course, also there, but we made a women chief guest, and the women need not be necessarily of a high position. Like, for instance, I mean, give you another example. The first one, uh, one year, we had a women chief guest, a farmer woman. Uh, she, she was just a farmer, but somebody who is quite progressive in that area, we made her a chief guest. In second year, uh, we made a teacher, a woman teacher for Casa Primary School as a chief guest. And this year, again, we made another woman who is also a, uh, uh, just a farmer. So this kind of uh, real, I mean, we are not just talking. Uh, we try to uh, 
work of, uh, I mean, this is a simple thing. Otherwise, uh, you talk about women empowerment, you talk about women gender parity, but in a gathering in all, women are always behind. Like, for instance, on those days, we compulsively make sure that, I mean, when, if the lunch is being served, we compulsively make sure that mandatory that the women, all the women are first served and then the men follow. And also, of course, we can do so many things in Gaza because it's a small place. So, even in a gathering like this, uh, normally, uh, it's the women who will be always serving. Whether it is a civil serving woman or uh, there are at the same level the main civil servant also, but somehow by default it is always the women uh, serving the teas and all. But at least on that day we make sure that uh, women don't serve the men, the men civil servant is serve. These are some small things that actually we are uh, we are doing. That. And also on the income part, uh, earlier doctor also touched, uh, which can be quite a radical. As of now, since Gaza wants to make be a self-reliant, even if we get things from Punaka, made in Punaka, we consider as import. So, I mean, we are going that serious. Uh, so, we have been implementing since last uh, two years. Now, uh, in terms of import substitution, when we organize, the government is when government is paying uh, for the refreshment and snacks, we don't allow to serve imported biscuits as a snacks. It has to be either locally made kabze or zao or sin. And we are saying, if the zao and sin comes from Punaka also, it is not. But of course, we are not going to that. <laughs> at least, if you come to the Gaza Zonkab, if it's an official event, you will not find on a table, when the tea is being served, you will not find a biscuit. Because as of now, unless the, if the biscuit is made in <laughs> So these are some small things that we are, we are doing to really Move, move towards this. Uh... It also makes a fantastic uh, environmental sense in cutting down the carbon footprint. Of the yes, yes. This uh, talk is very inspiring, and especially when you talk about uh, income generation and self-reliance through uh, enterprises like a community business. Uh, I was just wondering at what you were talking. You look at the resources of Casa and. Uh, most important resources you have is number one is Cordyceps, and number two is you have tourism, Laya and Runa tourism, and then you also have hot springs. So, are these resources going to be a part of this community company, or is it going to be uh, left as it is now? Because if you take them all within your community company, then that itself can, I think, you make your rich uh, Zonkala. Uh, thank you very much. Yes, I think uh, we can touch on very important. Yes, it is very much part of our Go to Great Casa strategy. Uh, we have two areas. One is the organic agriculture, which you touched upon. That is going to be our main enterprise, organic agriculture. Second is definitely tourism. Now, tourism, as of now, Casa doesn't benefit. At national level, of course, tourism is, I think, second uh, highest revenue honor. But if you come to the local economy of Gaza, tourism is not uh, contributing anything to Gaza much. It's just a trickle-down effect. And most of these two companies are all based in power and all the big. And our people, the Gaza, they just get incorporation of so, so we are going to develop this. And now, as of now, as per our vision, we are even thinking, we, have, we are discussing, but I don't know how, whether, and I think it should happen, actually. We are even thinking this Gaza, uh, social company, to start a tour company. 
by Gaza. So that we can get uh, our tourists directly to Gaza. I mean, that is one, one strategy we are thinking in mind. That as of now, Gaza doesn't own any, any tour company. So this is one, one area we are thinking. Other one is, as you have rightly pointed out, our, in terms of tourism, we have a huge potential. Now, Sachu, the, the, the hot spring. Gaza is supposed to, uh, by legend, we are supposed to have 108 Sachus uh, and Menchus, 108 Sachus and Menchus, of which uh, the most popular one is the hot spring, located in Gaza proper. And then in the Gaza proper itself, already we have about 35 Menchus, which we can be translated as medicinal water. It's supposed to cure so many I mean, different types of ailments. And those are, again, some things that we can really you know, work on uh, uh, for, the, for the tourism. And of course, we have Diane Lunana, as I think most, some of you might know. I mean, for that reason only, I think, with the uh, command, with the vision of His Majesty, we have started this Royal Highland Festival. These are all targeting tourism, actually. And so far, I think uh, it is doing very well. We have already concluded the third edition of the Royal Highland Festival. With that, we have Diana. Uh, so, uh, yes, sir, I mean, definitely, this will be part of our Let's a follow up. Muslim mentioned the cordyceps, and the cordyceps is at the moment a major source of income for islanders. Uh, we hear also about unsustainable harvest of cordyceps. What is the real situation up there? No, real, uh, because I was, I, I was at the ground level and talking with the people there. Now, with, the, with those people that I talked with, actually, they are actually not really reporting of any decline in the production. Now, according to them, this cordyceps is supposed to be a five-year cycle. Five-year is not alternate. So they they know actually the the locals they they know. For instance, last year 20, I mean this year 2018 was supposed to be a cycle for a particular place in Bunana called Pangu. In fact, I wrote one article in Pencil titled as Pangu, the fungus, the Pangu fungus festival. Uh, because it was going to be a big event, it was coming after five years. And that place is supposed to give the best quality and the very, I mean, bumper production. So therefore, uh, uh, it moves on. So then now, the same quantity and quality will come to that farm only after five years. So it is not across the range. It is not saying that Lunana, one, the same year, everyone. Even in Lunana, Fungu, as I said, is just one area. Similarly, in Luna, again, next year, this place will shift to another place. So it's a five-year cycle, and the, the interaction that I had with them, they have actually not really uh, reported about the decline. They're saying it is the, depends on which, which year. So maybe there's some miscommunication. But having said this, we, we are not saying it has to be harvested. Of course, just now, it is very nicely regulated by government, mainly to ensure sustainable harvesting. For instance, only three people are allowed from every household to harvest. Everybody's not allowed. So this kind of uh, sustainable harvesting are in practice. But I, I, uh, as of now, but internationally, I think there are a couple of you know, articles uh, in the media also where there is supposed to be declined. But my story is based on my first-hand information with my interaction. Of course, I have not done any research as such, but this would be my, my uh, sharing class. I've been reading a very good evening uh, to all of you, and uh, thank you for sharing uh, your plans and about the future of us. Uh, I read uh, in an article that um, near the hot spring, 
Gaza has made a separate accommodation for people with disabilities, as well as there is a ramp at the entrance, and uh, even the toilet has got a supporting hand, which is very mindful of uh, uh, the leadership. Uh, so I was just wondering that, uh, as in when Gaza progressed from good to great, uh, what are your plans about involving this? I, I guess it's around 30 people in Gaza among 3,000 who are with disabilities. So what is your plan of involving them as well? Because when we say about go to great, we must have that should be inclusive also. This is what I think. Thank you. Sir, thank you very much. Yes, I think uh, we took a small initiative. Gaza Sachu is the main, I mean, the talking center for Gaza. So people from all the districts come there. Um, besides the foreigners, and we made a special facility, especially for the disabled and for aged, I mean, those people who really can work. Because as of now, the accommodation for hot spring is not near. Of course, it's not so far, it's just nearby, but then people, uh, even the people complain that it's a bit too far. So therefore, we made especially for that disabled. So if you are disabled, there is a place just near hot spring so that they don't have to be. Now, Coming uh, straight to your question, to be honest, I think uh, we have not really given serious thought on this, uh, I mean, separate thought, but definitely, as you have rightly said, it should be included. But just an honest feedback answer, uh, we have not really covered in as of now. But by the way, disability, we are very much concerned. We are taking it on board. I mean, as you said, it looks like we have already come to know, we have created that facility. My name is Chetutoji. I'm Internet Law Foundation. Uh, especially when you're talking about the self-reliance, and particularly when you're talking about where Kasa, people of Kasa wouldn't import things from district like Punaka. I think it's such an intriguing case. Yeah. But what I'm thinking is, like, we cannot put an embargo on products from other districts, and we cannot stop people coming to the Kasa district from other districts within Bhutan. So in this case, my first question is, do you think this is applicable to other districts in Bhutan? And my second question is, especially when we go down to, down to the vegetable market, and when we go to the, like, our home products, especially when it comes to agricultural products, when we compare the price of the products from the Bhutan and those which are imported, I think there's huge differences between that. So my second question is, when in achieving the self-reliance, or maybe the, this good to green passing initiative, how can you ensure the green and affordable agriculture products from our own land? Thank you. Well, so the first one, definitely we cannot put in embargo. I mean, uh, I mean, as I said, this is a bit radical. Uh, and in practice, I don't think we can really uh, monitor or enforce this. But this, just to explain the concept, especially to our people, that even if you get things from Paraka, we should consider this the high import. So, and also to encourage our own production. And also, I mean, that is the one. But of course, we will, I mean, it's not an official statement that they cannot bring. I mean, that will be not there. So, that is the first one. The second one, uh, on the cost of the uh, the products, our local products, being priced much higher. I, I, as we were informed, I used to be a director of the DMC Department of Agriculture Marketing Cooperatives. So that time, that was my one of my biggest uh, challenge. Uh, 
now my belief still 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 full. Uh, uh, I mean, stands as before. I used to say, if we really want to make a self-sufficient in vegetables uh, in our country, to start with, maybe for a couple of years, we have to really subsidize our own production. I mean, I have been saying this, and during my time only, we have actually convinced the government and we have actually introduced minimum price support or subsidy. So what we did is, uh, because when we produce locally, the cost of production is high, so we just cannot compete with the Indian uh, imported one. So if you take into account cost of production, the price is going to be high, and the farmers, the producers have to get their, based on their cost of production, that is one. And the buyers, the consumers, uh, we also have to go for the cheapest, because we also have a limited money to spend on a vegetable, so uh, unless you are really having extra income uh, with a given salary, I don't think, uh, because anyway in Bhutan, the, as of now, still, uh, health from, from eating Indian vegetables has never been a major issue as such. So therefore, there is no in, uh, incentive for a local, uh, ordinary Bhutanese to pay higher for a local produce than Indian. So there is no, no logic. So then that means majority of Bhutanese populations are ordinary people. So if they choose to buy, continue to buy Indian food because it's cheaper price, then our local production will be never encouraged. And people are not going to be able to sell, then what? Then who will produce a vegetable? So then I used to say, we introduced this, but of course we really could not uh, follow it, uh, this through. Uh, but I still feel, even today, uh, yes, I think the local, uh, given the choice, if you have a choice, I would miss local, ordinary will buy the cheaper one. So therefore, the organic or the local will left out. So therefore, the government has to come in. I mean, this is my opinion. Maybe many of you may not agree to this, but I feel if we are to achieve self-sufficient to encourage, I mean, that is not for all times to come. We have to break this ice. Just now, we are not able to break this ice. We are still half-hearted. We are saying, okay, okay, let's grow a vegetable, but then how much they grow and then suddenly they're not able to see. In fact, I'll share our own experience in Gaza last two years. Now, before this, because I coming from a marketing background, we initiated this uh, uh, organic certification. In fact, Gaza became the first Hong Kong in 2016 to certify our three products as organic. Uh, carrot, garlic, and uh, potato. And now, our farmers, Gaza too, continue to grow this organically. Our farmers have to be uh, getting some more. If our potatoes get sold at the same price as a potato Kunaka, where they use all kinds of fertilizers, then what is the incentive for our Gaza people to continue to be organic? This doesn't make sense. Why should they be penalized? So therefore I'm saying we, the government, should come in there, pay Gaza farmers something more. But we didn't do this, of course. So what we did is, just to encourage farmers, we linked up with the high-end hotels in Kimbo. We made a signed MOU, we negotiated the price, we agreed the price, and our farmers were happy, they produced, but then again, uh, the hoteliers in Timbu, of course, please don't, uh, after this session, please go, don't go and tell them. They, they didn't ignore, I mean, didn't respect this. We, uh, our production was done on their demand. Before we told our farmers group to produce, we uh, agreed on the price and the quantity. After growing this, when we were actually delivering, then the actual uh, quantity they demanded by these hotels here is almost like less than 50%. Mm -hmm. 
So we had 50% surplus there. Now who is going to do this? And I think in government subsidies certainly have, but maybe that's also not a sustainable answer. Yeah. I think we need to really do a rigorous uh, consumer education, really educate Portuguese consumers to buy organic products over the ones that use chemical fertilizers. Um, I see a hand up here. And Sangi, I'll come up to you after the gentleman here. Good evening. Uh, I am a faculty member in Yedu College and I am deputy here from Government of India. Yeah, let me salute to the spirit of the development here and uh, somehow I relate your spirit. I had been pushing all my students throughout the life. But here are some of the kind of uh, you know, conflicts in what I learned and had been teaching these students and what I am listening here. <laughs> so my, I have two questions. So throughout I had been thinking of you know, pushing students on the self-reliance, but my observation personally is that if the people are not having the mindset of becoming self-reliant, it is not possible. So for say example in India, Biharis are always gripping about the government policies. If they cannot get a job, they crib about the government's policy. So, and contrary to that, the Gujarat people are, you know, saying that. I happened to visit one <coughs> once there, and I said, "Has the government built this road inside the village?" And they said, "Who is the government? If government wants the support, we are here to support the government." So that's the kind of bolster confidence in Gujarat and start different. <coughs> I'm just surprising the kind of development the Gaza has seen. Did you do something to change the mindset of the people before you could actually implement your vision? That is the first question. Second is, I had learned the management strategy, teaching marketing strategy, and all over the great philosophers of the world had been telling, for say example, just to cite one, apart from Sumantra Goshal, uh, Michael Porter, they say focus, number one. Number two, Michael Porter has given voluminous strategy book there that focus on the competitive strategy of the nations. And the uh, international finance and international economics people all tell about you to become specialized. Do something which you can do better from the rest. and. Very excellent question put up by sir. 3,000 people, given the kind of certain natural resources, probably it would be unwise from my perspective. You know, forgive me for that. <laughs> it would not be sensible to produce everything in-house. Probably fully developed nations also rely on the, you know, getting the most competitive, cheaply made it from outside and do the best thing. So Americans are best in creating the good ideas. Chinese are good at producing the physical goods. Indians are good at providing the intelligent services, information processing services. So I think the vision is something, as per my perspective, you know, from the strategy and marketing perspective, which I see. I think probably this is it. So these are two questions. Thank you very much. The last one first. 
I think uh, I no no disagree. Uh, in respect to your view, and I also agree. But uh, only thing is, what we are trying to do is to start with. I mean, that is our uh, passion. We said we are seeing. We will try to produce whatever we can. But definitely, the, as we go along, there will be certain things that we won't be able to produce ourselves. I mean, economically. So as we move along, I think that will be adjusted. So. For sure, uh, there's no doubt that uh, we have to depend on certain things from other places. True enough. And then coming to your, the earlier one, uh, whether I have done anything before, before actually going on with this patient. Now, I just wanted to make a disclaimer here. As I said earlier, also, I remember saying, we are working progress. We are not saying uh, we have achieved everything. We are working progress, all these things. And also, uh, so when I say this, it doesn't mean that all my uh, people in Gaza, they fully understand this. Uh, though it is just 3,300, but even such a small population, it is taking time uh, for everyone to understand this. And as you said, uh, the third one is linking to this, development, self-reliance is a state of mind. I mean, it is your mindset. So therefore we are saying, and in fact I have also written an article uh, titled Self-Reliance is a State of Mind. It is in, in your uh, mind. And along with this, uh, we also talked about this, I think, uh, the dependency syndrome in that statement. Now, biggest challenge that we are facing towards achieving the self-reliance is the dependency syndrome. And dependency syndrome at the grassroots level. And also I think earlier, I think uh, we had a brief meeting and there are also things, dependency syndrome at the civil service level as well as level. So these are some few challenges that, that we have. Yes, thank you. Um, so Sangeet, I think the final question will become you since you are a member of NASA. Uh, uh, through my own experience, just in a little bit of context, uh, I have experienced in the last 10 years in Bhutan doing a quite similar thing on a different line level as an entrepreneur. I have realized three Three results we have been consistently produced over the years, and these three results that nobody, no one of us wants, but we've been uh, uh, observing this over and over again. And these three things that I have observed: the uh, our rural homes are gets, getting more and more emptier. Uh, young unemployed rate is constantly increasing at the national level, and also the economic inequality is rising over time. Uh, seemingly, in a well-doing country like Bhutan. Uh, despite so many uh, positive progresses we have. And even in Gaza, to, uh, to really relate, because I studied there, I came from there. Uh, all these programs that you have uh, launched there are very beautiful. But I, I would feel that uh, uh, if we can bring in more young people on stage, on board, uh, this, problem, this, this program can be more uh, enhanced over time. And over a time, I think if these young people in Gaza, for instance, most of the traditional shopkeepers who are my cousins, my uh, uncle, aunties, they have really uh, sidelined and our uh, younger generations have taken over. But until now, they are not really doing it innovatively or uh, in, in a more uh, coherent way as far as the divisions you have set in. So do you have any plans for young people to come on board so that this quality report can be owned and shared over a time, even if you live after a few years? I think these young people will continue to uh, progress and uh, take the continuity from there. The other thing is uh, kind of a suggestion. 
We have, I, I know a lot of young people here in Bibu who are entrepreneurs, who are, by the way, been taught by uh, Dr. Lisa as well. Many people think we are here to make uh, noises and uh, untame online, but deep inside we have this longing for this country to have a progression, uh, developmental visions like Gaza, and we like to be part of it. Is there any avenues where uh, different entrepreneurs across the country uh, that we can contribute, not just morally, but also in the practical sense, if there's any avenue that we can create new visions? That's it. Yes, sir. Thank you. So on the participation of youth, yes, I think that has been our top priority actually. And as you will understand, somehow we are still not able to convince our youth. And in the first place, we don't have many youths, I mean, uh, available youths in Gaza. Uh, in fact, this company-to-own company, when we started, uh, one of the objective of this company-to-own company is local employment generation. Creation. So the company, uh, when we were operating this, we employed two uh, local youths there actually. They were, one was class 10 dropout and another was class 12, 12 dropout. So they, they were engaged, employed, they are still there. So in fact, one of the objectives is to uh, engage them. And also, we, when we actually advertise uh, the takeover of this company, we were actually encouraging youth. But somehow, uh, we have, as of now, not been able to convince uh, the youth. But Definitely, uh, it is in our top criteria. Uh, and then the second uh, part, whether other parts, I mean, the entrepreneurs like yourself, if you can play some role in Gaza, uh, we have not as of now thought about it, but I think I definitely, now since you have expressed this, I think there is a big opportunity there. So there's something that we can discuss, we can talk, uh, in our future yes, Thank you. Um, the conversations are getting so uh, enjoyable and uh, again, done over time. Um, but I've got two questions still to ask you. Tonda, uh, this week, now continuing this discussion on you, this week the Royal Civil Service exam results have come out and some 700 young people are going to be civil servants. You are a seasoned civil servant. Do you have any practical tips or advices that you want to give to the new aspiring civil servants? Yes, uh, I think uh, maybe like to take this opportunity. Mine will be now really a hardcore uh, advice or suggestions to the new generation of civil servants. Now we want to look for a new generation of civil servants. Now our generation, I think, uh, slowly will be in the background. Uh, my view. So, therefore, uh, anybody who wants to join civil service, as I said, is a hardcore definition, should make a conscious decision that now I'm joining a civil service means it will be all selfless. There will be nothing private and personal. As long as I'm serving in civil service, whatever government is paid, of course, the government will try to take care of the future of civil servants, their retirement uh, period also. but. As long as I'm civil service, I'm not doing anything personal or private. Because if you get engaged in a private uh, personal uh, work, then your time and the public resources can be pulled in, whether knowingly or unknowingly. And I think that is not a true uh, civil servant. Of course, in the past, as of now, maybe this is not happening. But for the new, uh, new generation, I think my biggest advice would be this. Uh, because, and again, this inspiration comes from His Majesty. His Majesty, in his command to RCC in 2007, 
uh, his basically the command was for us to, to review, to remember our civil service. Because his majesty thought, believed that civil service is become complacent. Now in that command, uh, I cannot quote exactly, but what he says is, civil, everybody in the country, public or private, will look up to the bureaucracy. So therefore civil servants should uh, lead by higher ideals, nurture higher morals. This is what majesty said. And also, later on, in the same uh, following year in 2008, in the coronation address, His Majesty said, for, not for one day I'll uh, uh, rule you as a king, I will serve you as a son, as a father, as a brother, as a friend, uh, and I have no personal interest, no personal ambitions. All what I'm going to do is, whatever I do, uh, is to fulfill the aspirations and the goals of, of the citizen. And I think that is the standard that civil service is expected. We are expected to be selfless. Otherwise, if if a civil servant, even you recruit, if they want to join civil service to make money, to make a building, or you know, to do, uh, I think that is not the right place, no matter. But so far, I think. Uh, so the final question: Bhutan Dialogue offers two books in appreciation. Um, what type, two titles did you choose, and why? Uh, so one one is this good to great. This is a book by Jim Collins, and this book the first reason why I choose this is as is, as now we have heard enough. The this is one of the main tools that uh, that I used uh, in my vision for good to great. And this of course basically a book on leadership and management. And other biggest reason is I got this book from His Majesty. So because of this I think uh, this is why why I choose. And the second one, I think, is right here. Uh, this is uh, actually being peace, and uh, this is not my choice. This is my wife's choice. So I also, uh, she's an equal partner in me. So since I've given a choice to choose to a two, so I gave her one opportunity, and she chose this. Being nice by thick, thick not And then I, of course, I would look forward to reading, reading this. Thank you very much. Um, so this comes to. The of our session. Um, I hope you have uh, learned a little more about uh, rural development in Bhutan and specifically about Kasa. I have learned quite a lot, and particularly uh, about the initiatives that Zonga uh, has taken up in Kasa. I normally end this session by quoting a Bhutanese saying uh, or um, bringing in a piece of wisdom from our own heritage. For today, I thought the most appropriate would be to talk about self-reliance. And this is a, a saying that comes all the way from the Buddha, but most elegantly put by Satya Pantata in his treasury of elegant sayings. Very simple. Independence is happiness. Dependence is suffering. So with that, thank you all for coming. Enjoy the refreshments. And thank you, Zonga, for joining us. Thank you.